Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. We've been looking at the various letters in the New Testament from Paul, from James, and now 1 Peter. So a letter from Peter. This is Peter, you know, the disciple, the apostle, the fisherman. Absolutely. That's the guy, the guy who was one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus, that mixture of incredible faith and incredible stupidity and weakness at times. And Jesus took this guy and shaped him and discipled him. And when once filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, he becomes one of the leading figures in the early church. We find him occurring very much in the first few chapters of Acts, and then he disappears from that story as the focus moves to Paul. But we know that he ended up in Rome as quite a significant figure there. So he was a working man, he was a fisherman and all that. So has he written this letter? Yes, he has. Although some scholars have struggled with the thought that he wrote it because it's in such jolly good Greek. I mean, it really is very refined Greek. And so many have said, well, how on earth could a, a fisherman like Peter write Greek? Yes, he almost certainly spoke Greek because he would have needed to as a sort of fisherman businessman. But how on earth could he have written this? Well, I think the answer is given to us in the letter itself, because as we come to the end of chapter 5 and verse 12, he says, With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying this is the true grace of God. Stand in it. So with the help of Silas. So we're back here to that idea that we've touched on before, that letters were often written with the aid of a scribe and a manuensis, its technical term, and that Sometimes that scribe would literally write down what you dictated. Sometimes you would give him the idea that you wanted to communicate and then they would write that up. I was just thinking, uh, even this morning as I read through this letter again, there have been times when as a pastor, I've had people who've come to me and said, I need to write a letter to such and such an organisation, but I'm not very good at writing. Could you help me? And, and I've said, so what do you want to say? And then I've put it together and then said, so is that it? Is that exactly what you want to say? And they said, yeah, that's it. That's great. Thank you. And I think that's what Peter did. He recognised what he was and he recognised what he wasn't. And what he wasn't was a careful writer. So here's his friend, colleague, co-labourer Silas helping him put his thoughts into this really good Greek and giving us this letter that we've got today. And who is he writing the letter to? He tells us at the beginning of his letter, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to God's elect, so to Christians, strangers in the world scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood, note the unconscious Trinitarian reference in passing there, to 
Christians who are scattered in the world, scattered across what we would call modern Turkey. And it looks like these are Christians who have probably moved from Judea, so probably Jewish Christians by background, who have moved away into other parts of the Roman Empire in the hope of escaping from pressure and persecution from their local Jewish believers, but finding they've jumped from the frying pan into the fire, as we put it in the previous episode, and are finding that they are now facing opposition there, but this time not so much from fellow Jews, but increasingly from the Roman state. So he talks about them being strangers in the world. They're they're scattered, they're dispersed, they're aliens, not in the sense of aliens from outer space. They are immigrants to other parts of the world and as such would often have been despised, of course. And their faith was not recognised by the state, you're saying? Yes, in fact, the background to this letter that was written in the early 60s is that Rome is increasingly turning against Christianity. I mean, initially, certainly at the time of Jesus, the whole Christian thing was just seen as a, a sort of subsect of Judaism. And Judaism had been accepted by Rome as what they called a religio licta, an authorised state-approved religion. A bit like in some countries of the world today where faiths have to be authorised, approved by the state to be able to operate. And Judaism had been an approved religion. Now, frankly, the Romans thought it weird, but they thought, you know, these Jews are pretty harmless. They just did their weird stuff. And as long as they're good citizens, which they were, we don't mind. But as it became increasingly clear that Judaism was rejecting Christianity, not seeing it as a Jewish sect at all, actually as quite a different religion Rome increasingly became more suspicious of it. It didn't have that sort of religio licta approval anymore, and so increasingly becomes suspicious. And by the 60s, and particularly by the time of the Emperor Nero, who ruled from 54 to 68 AD, as we're getting into the early 60s, Rome is getting increasingly suspicious, increasingly opposed to the Christians. And within just a, a, a few years of this letter, we'll let that suspicion and opposition become outright persecution. There was a thing that many listeners will have heard of called the Great Fire of, of Rome that happened in July 64 AD when a fire started in Rome and it spread rapidly. The whole thing burnt for six days. They managed to put it out, but then it came back again and burnt for another three days. And two-thirds of the whole of the city of Rome was completely destroyed. And the Emperor Nero, who was becoming increasingly unstable in his thinking, wanted a scapegoat, wanted someone to blame, and he would end up blaming the Christians. And it would be at that point from 64 onwards 
that the outright overt persecution would come and Christians would start to find themselves martyred and people like Peter himself would end up getting martyred under Nero. But this letter's a little earlier than that. It's two, three, four years before that outright persecution that was really kicked off by the fire of Rome that Nero falsely attributed to the Christians. So in the light of what's happening for Christians, is Peter encouraging the believers to be sort of subversive in terms of the state? Here's the amazing thing. He does the very opposite. What he actually encourages throughout the whole of this letter is he encourages them to be good citizens. He's really saying, I want you to live out your Christian faith with your eyes fixed on Jesus and remembering who he is and what he's done for you and his sacrifice for you and what he's building you into, his own people and a holy temple. And I want you to live in such a way that that is seen by everyone, whether it's in the way that you live as a family, husbands and wives, how you relate to one another in the lifestyle that you live in your relationships. But I want the state to see that not just in an indirect way that you are good citizens. I I want it to be really clear in an overt way as well. Despite what might happen to you. And here's the crazy thing. In fact, I'm going to read to you just a, a few of the verses. And as we read this, let's remember that background that we've outlined. Increased persecution, this Emperor Nero increasingly getting suspicious and turning against Christians, an outright persecution just round the corner, martyrdom for Peter just round the corner. And yet here's what he writes in chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. So rather than saying, now's the time to really, you know, stand up for your own rights, go and get yourself a gun. You're going to need it to protect yourself. Here he's saying, I want you to submit to Rome. Why? Because it's been instituted by God. It may not be good, it may not be perfect, but in the overall scheme and plan of things, God has put this authority in place for now. And I want you to submit to it because even bad government is better than no government, than anarchy and what follows. And note how he does it there to submit themselves, not for Nero's sake. Nero, of course, very soon would be proclaiming himself to be a god. But it's not for Nero's sake. It's not for your sake. It's actually for the Lord's sake. This is the right thing to do. If you truly believe that Jesus is seated on the throne at the right hand of God and he has all things under his control, even when it looks like he doesn't, then for the Lord's sake, 
it's right that you submit to these authorities. And I think what he's saying to them is, let them see they have nothing to fear from you. That's incredibly challenging in the situation in which they found themselves. Particularly when there's surely a fine line between submitting and conforming. Yes, uh, very much so. And uh, I think both sides are, are covered in the New Testament, though not in this letter. But the line it seems to take is, I want you to submit to the authorities, but if the point comes where you are called to do something that you know God says you cannot do, then that's the point where you have to draw the line. So there's an example in Acts chapter 3 where Peter and James are going to the temple and they pray for a guy who is sick and he gets healed and the religious authorities don't like what they're doing and they're told, they said, we've commanded you to stop doing this. And and they say, look, sorry, but we have to obey God who's commanded us to go out with the gospel and preach the good news and heal the sick rather than human authorities. So there will be a point when a line has to be drawn when the authorities might call upon you to do something that is the very opposite of what God says. And at that point, the New Testament's very clear. We have to draw a line and say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. But I find this ever so challenging because in the West, we're we're a bunch of moaners really about politics and leaders, aren't we? And our, our first response to Anything, you know, particularly if it's not our party who's in power at the moment, it is to moan, to groan, to post on social media, to complain. And what an attitude here of saying, well, could you dare to believe that in the sovereign purposes of God, God's put these people in position for now? And could you dare to actually um, go along with it and support it and encourage it? Doesn't mean that you can't vote the other way. Next time in a democracy, you're free to do that. But I think this is a really challenging passage. And Paul, he says exactly the same as Paul in Romans. Paul teaches exactly this same line. So that's a challenge to us today and I think how we respond to our leaders. But in practical terms, how does Peter, writing to these Christians, try and help them to understand how to live in the world they were in? Well, the interesting thing is he, he doesn't start by saying, so here's how I want you to live. He actually does what Paul generally does in his letters. He starts with some good theology. I think two things stand out at the beginning of his letters. You've got to understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you and who we are in him. And once you have understood those two things, then you can start to live this out. So in chapter one, there's this lovely section where he he really just thanks God for the living hope that we've been given in Jesus and the inheritance that we've got that can never perish, spoil or fade. I, I love that. So he focuses, first of all, on what the hope is that we have in Jesus. And He's going to go on out of that living hope that we get through new birth to talk about who we are, who we become when we acknowledge what Jesus has done for us. And in chapter two, he talks about Jesus as the living stone, he describes him, 
that was rejected by men, but chosen by God. And he's a sort of living stone that's become the the foundation stone, the cornerstone in a building. And, And you've been taken as individual bricks and are being built into him and around him and are being built into a a holy temple for God. That's who you are. So this is giving them perspective, really. I think that's a great way to put it, David. Perspective that, okay, you may be being opposed. You, you may be being despised out in the world. But I want you to know who God sees who you are. Because of your faith in Jesus and because of what God has done to us, you are a temple, a holy temple that God has built and a temple that... God is living in. And then he goes on to this sort of fantastic passage where he draws out of that. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So not only are you living stones built into this spiritual house, you're a holy priesthood, you're a royal nation, you're the chosen ones of God. All imagery there, by the way, that was used of Israel in the Old Testament. Here is God reforming Israel around its Messiah and Israel now of both believing Jew and believing Gentile. So I think how you summed it up is a great way. He starts by giving them perspective. And do you know that's still so relevant for us today? When when we are facing particular issues, it's really easy for us to sort of think, right, what do I need to do? And and I'm a bit of an activist. I like to go out and fix things. And but Peter's saying, look, how are we going to deal with this pressure? And this persecution that is definitely coming, we're going to start by getting some perspective. We're going to start by getting some perspective on Jesus, on who he is and what he did. He has this fantastic thing about Jesus in chapter three, where it sums up the gospel, really. He says, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. That's one of my favorite verses for sharing the gospel, what the essence of the gospel is, that Christ died for sins. It was once for all. It was the righteous for the unrighteous, and he did it to bring us to God. So get perspective on him. Remember who he is and what he's done. Get perspective on who you are. A spiritual temple, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And and, and you can almost feel this swelling. You can feel it building up. And I think he means his readers to sort of feel their hearts swelling, not with pride, but with yes, that's us, isn't it? And it's when you know who Jesus is and who you are in Jesus that then you can go on to what the rest of his letter is, which is about how should we live in the light of that? I assume he's going on to say, you know, when the rubber hits the road, this is what makes a difference. Yeah, and it's going to start with that challenging thing that we were just talking about, submitting to rulers. 
He's going to go on to talk about how slaves should submit to their masters. Now, remember, at times of unrest, slave revolts were one of the most regular occurrences that happened in the Roman Empire. So that would be really important culture. I don't want Christianity mixing up with becoming some revolution. Not in that sense, at least, he, he wants them to know. He calls them to constantly follow the humble example of Christ. He talks in chapter three to wives and husbands about how they should relate to one another. In chapter four, he talks about the importance of living in a right way for God, abandoning the old way of life that their pagan friends around them had done. He says, you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. And they're now thinking it's strange you don't plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. Isn't that interesting? Still happens today when friends say, yeah, come out and get drunk with us like you used to do. What are you doing all this? Why do you only just have one little drink these days? Come on and Exactly the same things were happening there. So he's encouraging them to, to stand firm in the Christian witness that they are making. He, he'll talk at the end of chapter four about suffering and tell them not to be surprised at the suffering that's coming, but actually just to see that as joy in participating in what Jesus himself went through. And then in chapter five, he'll have a word, a practical word for, for the elders in the church, to shepherd God's flock. I love that, a reminder of how Jesus had commissioned him at the end of John chapter 20 and into 21, where he is recommissioned to look after Jesus's flock. Now Peter, in turn, commends the other elders to do the very same thing. And an encouragement to, to be humble like Christ, to be self-controlled and alert, and a reminder at the end of chapter five that your enemy does prowl around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So resist him, stand firm in the faith, because you know your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering as you. You're not on your own in this. Other brothers and sisters are experiencing it too. So a very practical application of of the who we are and how we should live, therefore. And it seems to focus very much on, on relationships, the important relationships, um, even in the home. Yeah, relationships, uh, I think right through the board, relationships in the home, relationships master and slave, relationships in the church between leaders and, and church members, relationships to the very authorities that would soon be coming and, and hunting them down. Why? Because what's the Christian life? It's all about relationship. It is all about relationship with Jesus, not following a bunch of religious rules. Our faith is relational from start to finish. And so, in a sense, you're right, David, this is a, a very, very relational letter and a call to let our relationship with Jesus be outworked in very practical ways in our relationship with others. For anybody receiving this letter or hearing this letter who knew Peter and his background, the Peter that you said at the beginning, fisherman, 
called out of that business and then ultimately denied Jesus. You know, what a what a journey, a roller coaster journey he, he he's been on. How do you think they will have received, you know, his his wisdom, his advice? Huh. That's a, a good question. I mean, you're right. He had been on an incredible journey, and the thing is, it was it was a journey with you know not without cost for him. You know, he'd had to give up a a good little successful business. He'd had to leave family and friends behind. So Peter knew the cost. He could see the cost that was coming. And by the time he writes to Peter, that cost will be very, very close indeed, as he will have to give up his life himself. So I think they would probably, and obviously these are Christians who would have known him, known him well, I think probably what they would do is is take encouragement from the journey that he had been on. You know, it's it's good to see the Christian life as a journey. You know, the minute we put our faith and trust in Jesus, not everything changes overnight. It it didn't for Peter. He still did dumb things and said dumb things, as we read of in the gospel, as well as exercising incredible faith, like stepping out of the boat to walk on water. And... Our relationship with Jesus is a journey. It's a it's a walk in which sometimes we get things wrong and sometimes we get it right and we face different things at different times. But I think what they would take is, this is a guy who's writing to us who has been on this journey. And he's not Mr. Perfect Plaster Cast Saint. He's made his mistakes, you know, even after Pentecost, he still makes mistakes. We find... Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, writing about how Peter was a bit two-faced at one point and had happily eaten with Gentiles until some Judaizers came along and and then he suddenly withdrew and said, oh, no, no, I can't do this. So even there, he'd not got it always perfect. But here's a guy who's writing to them out of experience and knowing that through the ups and downs, as you put it, of his walk, a bit of a roller coaster of a walk with Jesus, Here he was still standing firm at the end and knowing that his Jesus was with him. And I think great encouragement from that. In the very last section of this letter, Peter writes this. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand in it. And I think he's thinking there not just of what he's written about, but, you know, the whole of his own story and his own experience of walking with Jesus because he discovered who Jesus was and what Jesus had done for him. And he had become part of that holy temple and the royal priesthood and holy nation. He'd understood for himself that this is about seeing this Christian life is all about grasping the grace, the undeserved kindness of God and getting hold of that and standing in that. And that's what he was still doing, even in this time of increasing persecution. And his encouragement to them is, guys, I want you too to stand in this grace. And I think as they would have looked back over the journey he'd been on, they would have thought, well, he's done it. I think we can as well. So he wrote it to them. He didn't really write it for us, but what can we learn from it? 
I think what we can learn is all of us will face trials and challenges at times in our life. And sometimes that might be very avert from opponents of our faith, as it still is in many parts of the world for Christians today. Sometimes the challenges will be more localized because of our work or our family or our business or stuff going on in our own personal life or health. But I think what I take from Peter's letter is, you know, whenever trials come into our life, whenever there are challenges, the key is to remember who Jesus is and what he has done for us and who he has made us in the light of that. And it's as we go back to those two foundations to remember that God's loved us so much that he's given his own son, Jesus, to die for us. And that as we put our faith and trust in him, we're included into his family, his chosen people, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, his holy temple that he's building. I am not on my own. I am included in this big spiritual family that God is building. And it says we remember those two things, who Jesus is and what he has done for us, that I think we are given perspective and hope and courage to be able to face whatever it is that is in front of us. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.